The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. It's made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. State and local governments spend about $4 trillion each year. That's trillion with a T. Did you ever ask yourself, where does all that money come from? And where does it go? Who manages it? And what do citizens and taxpayers have to show for it? In this podcast, we explore the budgets, bonds, and bureaucrats at the heart of state and local government finance. This is the Public Money Pod. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by my co-host, public finance journalist, chicken cosmetologist, bona fide public money wonk. You can find her stuff at Long Story Short on Substack. Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks. Thanks, Justin. Always, always fun to be here. And I like the the really long and detailed introduction. That's it's lovely. The resume is getting getting more padded here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So today we're uh, talking about the interesting emerging relationship between where we live, where we work, and what all of that means for public finance. We've talked uh, on this podcast many, many times already about work from home and the implications of work from home for uh, what we tax where money is spent, what sorts of investments state and local governments are making. And a key part of that is understanding uh, when, where we live and where we work crosses state lines and how uh, state taxation changes when we go from the, the border of one state to the next. And to help us sort a lot of that out, we have uh, joining us a little bit later, Scott Pattison from the Multi-State Tax Commission. It's going to help us understand uh, what, the, what the commission does and why it has been by many called the most important public finance organization you've never heard of. We're pleased to have Scott on a little bit later. To uh, set that up, though, let's talk a little bit about some of these trends that are making questions of state-by-state state tax policy ever more important. And again, we've talked about some of these things already, the work-from-home phenomenon, our uh, ongoing concerns about how we're going to pay for and make investments in transit, and many, many, many other uh, dynamics that uh, deserve a lot of attention. There was a lot of work uh, showing up in the media within these last couple of weeks, particularly about transit systems. You might have seen uh, some reporting on the uh, by the ratings agencies and others about some of the, the major financial concerns in transit systems across the country as fewer people are riding. And when they are riding, they might not necessarily be commuting from a uh, suburb downtown to work. It might be more of a going from one urban center to another urban center to shop or uh, possibly even to work. And that's a very different kind of rail system than a lot of our urban areas have. So with fewer people riding and more people staying at home and more people dispersed across a region rather than concentrated in downtown areas, what do you do? What do you tax? Where do you make those investments? How do you better serve the public in a very, very uncertain environment to say nothing for 
concerns about a recession, concerns about job cutbacks, and, and many other factors out there in the environment that are giving state and local leaders some pause about exactly how they want to tackle these issues. So uh, as is often the case, we're forced to think big and thinking big thinks uh, means thinking across uh, state lines. Now, Liz, I know you've done a bit of work on this and including some some reporting specifically on some state-by-state tax policy issues. Can you uh, remind us a little bit about uh, the work that you've done here and, and how it plugs into these broader themes? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's funny as we're, as we're talking about states and, and, and different income taxes, it's, it's kind of reminded me of the neighborhood I used to live in, which was a, uh, and stay with me here, <laughs> a post World War II neighborhood where you had like two or three house designs. And that was replicated across, across the neighborhood. It was like house design A, B or C. And then, but today, not a single house in that neighborhood is like the other because everyone's added on and added a second story or a basement or, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff because each family living in the house has, has needed it for different reasons. And tax policy across the states is kind of like that. There's a general structure, but each state is a little bit different. Each jurisdiction is a little bit different depending on any number of things, who lives there, what their economy is, what their values are. And that's sort of how reporting on tax uniformity is. I mean, it's crazy confusing and 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 there's a lot of different reasons that states do things differently. The issue that I have reported on most more recently, I'll say, uh, was during the pandemic, uh, an issue rose up between New Hampshire and Massachusetts. And what happened was New Hampshire, significant portion, uh, it's small, but noticeable portion of, of workers in Massachusetts actually live in New Hampshire. During the pandemic, obviously, none of those people were commuting to the office. And New Hampshire, or Massachusetts passed emergency legislation allowing them to still tax those people's income. And so, um, which is kind of a big deal because... New Hampshire doesn't have an income tax. And so uh, they Massachusetts pointed to something called the convenience rule, which allows for out-of-state taxation on people who have jobs uh, in the state doing the taxing. Uh, it's something that other states do, uh, about six other states, Arkansas, Connecticut, Delaware, Nebraska, New York, importantly, and Philadelphia. It's essentially, if your job's in that state, you're coming to our state, you're using our resources, our transportation, your our roads and all that stuff. So we're going to tax your income because this is where your job is. That became becomes an issue when all of a sudden a lot of people actually stop going to the physical place of their job. And, and it's a real big issue in cities that are close to state borders. So what happened with New Hampshire and Massachusetts is New Hampshire, New Hampshire sued, uh, and tried to get the Supreme Court to hear the case. The Supreme Court wanted nothing to do with that at the moment. This was a, almost a couple of years ago. It was in mid-2021. And uh, and it hasn't come. And at the time, a lot of people said, well, it's not a good example because New Hampshire had to prove harm for, for Massachusetts taxing its residents. And New Hampshire doesn't have an income tax, so it's not really harmed. It's not losing revenue to Massachusetts. But a lot of people at the time pointed to, well, maybe not them, but New Jersey, Connecticut, and Connecticut, and um, and even Pennsylvania to some degree, are losing revenue to New York because a lot of people commute from from there to New York City, uh, and so a lot of folks thought that 
that would kind of be the test case to, to say whether or not this convenience rule is actually allowed by the Constitution. It hasn't come up yet, and I'm not sure why. Uh, a lot of people are still working remotely, but perhaps it's because we've we've kind of settled into it. Maybe people aren't working from home as often as 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 it, as people thought they would a couple of years ago. So, who knows? It's still on the radar, but it is definitely an issue that has died down for the moment. Yeah, for sure. And the it, it's interesting too seeing how a lot of these recent developments harken back to some of these classic tax policy questions. One of the big arguments for so many years against those kinds of local taxation uh, strategies, right? Having a, a local income tax or a head tax or a commuter tax or whatever it might be, it exists in a lot of places and it can be controversial. But in many places where those kinds of proposals have come up in the last, say, 25, 30 years or thereabouts, they've either failed or they've been, the, the, what has been imposed has been very different from what was originally proposed. Places like Seattle that have you know, recently had what was euphemistically called the Amazon tax, which is kind of a, a version of a, of a head tax or a commuter tax in a way. You know, places have looked at that pre-pandemic as a way to try to, to deal with the, the pressures that came from having huge growth in employment centers, particularly downtown, and a lot of them due to <clears throat> a single employer or a single industry, which was a good problem to have in some sense pre-pandemic. But now post-pandemic, it does raise that question of if there is any presence whatsoever, if, if employees have an office, if, if there's any any business being conducted anywhere near a <clears throat> central city, including having all of your back office, all of your payroll, all of your uh, infrastructure that's needed to, to actually do business, then you could make the case that that is something that ought to be taxed within a within a central city or or within a, a region, if nothing else. But at the same time, it's difficult to justify if people aren't physically coming in and using the infrastructure that they used to use. That was the the justification for having commuter taxes and head taxes and local income taxes and so forth. So it really does raise this kind of very basic question of if people don't live in your community, but then what does it mean to use your community? And using the community or uh, benefiting from being in the community could mean something very different today than it did in the past. And so we'll just have to watch and see what new models for local taxation emerge out of that tension. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Scott Pattison comes to us from the Multi-State Tax Commission and uh, someone playing a, a variety of roles there. We're really, really pleased to have him join us here on the Public Money Pod. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So, Scott, we appreciate you taking the time to join us in the role that you're in, as is often the case when you have uh, lots of different entities that you're working with in a, in a quasi-governmental capacity, as you mentioned. And sometimes we have to draw a, a distinction between statements of policy and, and statements of uh, your view of things. I assume that's the case here. Yes, I'm really happy to be on this podcast. And definitely, uh, the nice thing about the Multi-State Tax Commission is that we do policy pronouncements. You know what is official and approved by the commission. So anything I say here are my own opinions. 
and not official policy of the Multi-State Tax Commission. So first and foremost, I think it's important for us just to know what the Multi-State Tax Commission is. Uh, it's often, of course, been called the, the most important tax policy organization that you've probably never heard of. So I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about what you all do. And I'm sure some of our listeners too, given well, where they're coming from, are also curious how you got there. I mean, you certainly have an interesting background that I think uh, would be worth talking about a little bit too, if you don't mind. Yeah, certainly. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about the MTC, the Multi-State Tax Commission, because it really is interesting. And you're right, a lot of times we are below the radar which probably isn't a bad thing because we focus so much on policy. But the bottom line is the commission was created in 1967. I'll give you a brief history because it's really kind of interesting. In the late 1950s, the Supreme Court held that merely by soliciting business in a state, there was nexus and therefore possible tax liability for businesses. And at that time, Congress in particular, responding to the business community, was really worried about that particularly strong level of nexus created. Uh, so what happened was there was a law passed and basically said, you really have to have some activity in the state before they can tax your activities. So fast forward in 1967, because of that, there was concern that Congress was going to go a little too far based on a lot of discussion at that time in terms of getting into what state legislators and others thought was really their purview for overseeing state tax policy. So through the Federation of Tax Administrators at the time, the Multi-State Tax Commission was created by a compact of not all states, but most states, and pretty much every state now is somehow affiliated with the Multi-State Tax Commission. And the bottom line, what we do is basically, we look at tax policy, particularly on the income tax side, business taxation, and we look at sales tax also. And of course, there are a lot of issues now with technology changing and e-commerce about whether the particular business has a presence in a state and therefore the state can tax certain business activity. And a lot of what we do, it's interesting, we look at policy, but we do it in a way of trying to analyze what's going on, uh, provide insight. We'll actually do models of either legislation or particularly pol particular policies. And that takes a lot of time and we are a quasi-governmental organization. So almost everything we do is public and we ask for public participation. And for the most part, we've had very good participation from the business community. There are certainly things that we've done they pose strongly, but for the most part, we've had some really good interaction. Now, as far as myself, my career has been mostly in representing states and also public finance. So I was really happy where I was. I was doing some really exciting consulting projects on budgeting software. I was working with the university in Canada on comparing revenue budget tax systems across the world. And I was really enjoying that. But then this position at the Multi-State Tax Commission came up and I, I, it was ideal for me. I just love policy in the public finance area, but I also love the purpose of representing states and trying to protect state sovereignty, not that there's not important aspects of Congress and 
federal action when necessary. But for the most part, I really like the opportunity to protect state sovereignty. And so the MTC is a great place to be. Scott, I, first of all, I, I didn't know the, the Multi-State Tax Commission had, had been around that long. Um, I first kind of, it got on my radar when I was reporting on uh, sales tax collections online uh, and uh, the Supreme Court case that ultimately allowed states to do that. Um, and I think when I first started this reporting on this issue of, of tax conformity and different tax rates during in between different states and income tax, and I think that the example that helped me best kind of get it is is the one of major league sports players <clears throat> you know let's take a baseball player for example who plays 140 some odd games and half of those are in a, a, a you know small handful of different states other than that player's home state and so that player is you know possibly playing paying taxes in different states depending on a whole number of things so like that that sort of issue of how long do you work? How long is working somewhere, you know, considered taxable? Uh, where does a sale originate? Those kinds of complicated issues are, are I think, difficult to uh, help people kind of wrap their heads around it. For you and and for the commission, what are some of the the challenges to 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 that uniformity for for state taxes, income taxes, sales, or or otherwise? Yeah, that's a great question because we really are in an era where there's so much intra-state, interstate type of activity going on. And so it becomes very challenging. And there are all kinds of aspects of uh, nuances to developing uniformity. And I'll quote the compact, which created the Multi-State Tax Commission says, one of the things we need to do is promote uniformity and compatibility in significant components of tax systems. And as you say, it's really challenging and there's so many different issues. There are the very highly paid entertainment and sports personalities, and often there are very specific regulations and statute or statutory provisions about that. But as you point out, there are all kinds of other issues that come up. We're really seeing post-pandemic with people having moved a lot and people working remotely, a lot of questions that are still unresolved about remote work. And it's really interesting. I think you're going to see a lot of issues of where do you pay your income tax? Your business is in one place. Your business headquarters is in a different place. You are a resident of a different state. So those are the types of issues that are, are definitely going to come up. I will say something interesting, though, that I think really allows for a future of better uniformity. And you're already seeing it in some ways, but that's really the changes in technology. And what I mean by that is decades ago, small businesses would not have had the ability to follow state taxation all over the country if they were selling across state lines. It was complex and it would have been difficult. With technology, it really no longer is. It's relatively inexpensive for even a small mom and pop operation to buy certain software or to work with another firm. A lot of them sell through big companies like Amazon. And so there are ways now that it's less of a burden to actually deal with taxation across the states. So it's interesting to me that it's technology that created e-commerce but it's also technology that makes the ability of states and even localities all across the country and frankly, even across the world 
be able to issue and uh, basically assess tax liability. That's a it's a really interesting point. I hadn't actually thought before about how technology has this that dual relationship. Um, and and one thing I was thinking about too while you were talking is is the sales tax in particular. I mean, there is like a bazillion different combinations of sales taxes that, from special districts to counties to localities to state. I mean, some places like Chicago, for example, have taxes layered upon taxes layered upon taxes. Um, there is, however, a streamlined sales tax effort. And and maybe you can talk a little bit more about what that is and, and why more places don't do that. It's really interesting. And in fact, there are two organizations we call our sister organizations. One is the Federation of Tax Administrators, and that really focuses a lot on not only tax policy, but tax administration and trying to make it more efficient. But the streamlined sales tax organization is particularly important because it's been moving forward to try to get uniformity in how certain things are taxed. And unfortunately, as you can imagine, it, that's a real, I'll, I'll use a technical term, slog. Some of the larger <laughs> states are not part of that. Although I think a lot of us are optimistic someday we'll get to that point. But as you know, there are a lot of challenges because states really do like to have their own sovereignty. They like to have their own decision-making processes. So there is a patchwork, but you do have organizations like the Streamlined Sales Tax initiative really trying to get some uniformity. And they're interesting because the states that are members, uh, the decisions that are made are binding and they have to make some tough decisions. Like how do you define candy if you have a candy tax, but you don't tax other foods? It really is difficult. Are dried cranberries, they're very sweet and sugary. Are those candy? Are those sweets? You know, how do you define these different things. But in our venue, which I think is interesting too, the Multi-State Tax Commission, we really look at uniformity in terms of trying to, to look at, are there policies, are there processes and things that we can create some uniformity across states? So the, the kind of these sister organizations in the tax policy area, I think, are complementing each other very well. Again, it takes a long time, and there are plenty of states that are outliers on certain aspects. But I think, I think there's slowly this uniformity, at least on things like processes, that really allow us to try to decrease the burden on business. In fact, we have something called the Nexus Program. And what that does is try to create a program in which businesses are able to come to us. And if they have tax liability in multiple states, we can help them find out what that liability is and basically say, okay, you, you pay Oklahoma X, you play, pay Ohio Y, and it really helps them. It's, it's really kind of a one-stop shopping for the tax liability that companies have. In fact, a, a good example where that works really well is when companies merge or they purchase another company and the company that they've merged with or that they've purchased might have some tax uh, liability in a number of states, they'll come to our Nexus program and we will work with them to identify what is your tax liability in these different states? How much do you owe them? And that gives them kind of a clean slate and they can move forward in the future determining their, their state 
tax liability. Scott, it's worth asking, I think, it might seem obvious, but uh, just for our listeners who might be less tax policy inclined, imagine that you are a, a state budget director, you've worked with state budget directors, imagine that you are a, a city CFO. How does uniformity benefit you? What is the impact of that on budgeting, on financial management, on the kind of day-to-day activity of, of actually managing public money? Well, there are several benefits. One, of course, that we find, uh, and again, sometimes it'll take years as we develop some analysis and recommendations as to what are good uniformity policies, what's a good uniform process or policy that we recommend. And really what happens as part of that process is you're really trying to find what other states, what other localities are doing that really is the best. And so one of the the benefits that these officials have is if they're following something that's a model uniformity recommendation, they know it's been vetted. They know other jurisdictions have been utilizing that for quite a while, and it's probably a good way to do it. And so it's really important to try to create that uniformity. It creates efficiency and uh, it decreases the burden on the various business entities that are doing business in the state, but likely doing business in other states and many times across the world. And as you know, we really are getting the point where businesses are just, they're doing business across jurisdictions. You just rarely have one that's just in one state. It seems like a, a part of the MTC's role too here, as you said, is providing uh, analysis and, and recommendations and guidance. But it, it also sounds a little bit like from the way you're describing it, like you're a, a bit of a referee or a, a scorekeeper of sorts. And I know you're involved in audits as well. Is that a, a fair way to characterize uh, the audit work that the MTC does? Well, what the audit program does at the MTC, and I, I think, frankly, it's a, a great program. It started quite a few years ago, but basically states join the audit program. And then in the audit program, there is a fairly elaborate process of determining which major companies to audit across states. And then the states that are interested in an audit of that company will get involved and voluntarily be part of that. And it's a real efficient way to have states go ahead and audit a particular company. Now, no company and no person wants to be audited, but when you have something that is working across multi-states, it is a lot more efficient. And in many cases, it should be less burdensome because you're getting audited, but it's this one time. We try not to audit the same company for many years after an audit has occurred. And it's just a, a much more efficient way than a particular business being audited a bit, audited at different times, sometimes unsure when it's going to occur by all the different states. So it's been, it's been a, a really effective way for states to basically collectively get together, utilize the MTC audit program, and determine if particular businesses either owe or don't owe taxes. And and that's the other thing about the audit program. A lot of times we'll find out that they are owed a refund. It's not always that we find tax liability. 
I'm, I want to step back a little bit and just ask, uh, what's, what else are you working on right now? Uh, what's top of mind? Any upcoming projects you want to talk about? So some of the projects right now that I think are particularly interesting is, for example, we're doing one major project on the taxation of partnerships. The reason that's so interesting is there are a lot more businesses moving in that direction. And as you probably know, when you have a partnership entity, it's it's not the business, the partnership being taxed, it's actually the owners. So there's a much more complex source of income, or I should say sources of income. So we're really looking into that and how states should analyze partnerships going forward in the best way and best approaches to assess taxes and how to move forward. The other interesting thing that's going on is there's this whole new area, of course, of digital uh, type of commerce that's been going on for a while. But of course, government takes a while to kind of catch up to the changes in technology. Government doesn't move as fast. It's not designed to. And so we're looking into basically the digital taxation, how states should look at that. Uh, you probably know there's a really controversial situation in Maryland. They had a digital advertising tax. It was vetoed by the governor, but then legislature overrode the governor and imposed it. But uh, then businesses took that to court. It's currently uh, been struck down by the courts. And we also follow internationally some of these issues to see what, for example, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, which is a lot of countries across the world. And they're looking at trying to do uniform taxation in the digital as well as other areas. And what's interesting about that is you wouldn't think that would affect the states. But if the U.S. ever adopts some of these, and it's very hard to say what politically whether they will, but then it might impact what states can do. And so believe it or not, we actually do follow what's going on internationally. Again, these are things that take years to implement. There are a lot of um, political decisions that would have to be made uh, before things get implemented. But it shows that there's a lot out there. And I think it's better now to start thinking about tax policy, even if we're talking about some of these things may not be impactful for many years. And then I just have to throw out, you know, um, there are some interesting, you wouldn't think tax policy is that interesting, but there are some interesting questions. Like, for example, in a lot of states, services are not taxed, but uh, actual things are. So there have been fights about is supplying a porta potty to your party? Is that a service or is it an actual thing that should be taxed? Texas imposed a tax on strip clubs. And so there was a question about kind of, well, if the uh, entertainers are wearing latex, does that count as actually nudity and oh therefore they're not taxed? Or is that kind of nudity? Anyway, so I always say, who says tax policies? Not interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, not to get too, too sorted, but what exactly is the tax? Is it a sales tax, a service tax? I mean, what are we talking about? <laughs> there's going to be some follow-up questions to that, Scott. That's unavoidable. <laughs> yeah, I, I introduced a interesting topic that particular one actually is a per head uh customer tax okay okay <laughs> so, i believe it was five dollars <laughs> <laughs> but of course that's been in, in and out of the court so 
Well, that's exciting. Yeah, not that not that this audience needed to be convinced that tax policy is interesting, but you've done a nice job of <laughs> reinforcing that point as we've been going. Yeah. One question to follow up a bit on what you were saying a, a bit ago, Scott. So, when when there is friction among the states, <clears throat> either they're they're not signing on to recommendations, or they're not they're not joining some of these multi-state entities like the Streamline Sales Tax Project, or you know wherever it might be. What, in your experience, are the the typical sources of that of that friction? Is it ideological, or does it have to do with the economy in a given state, or technical issues? Like, what 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 prevents truly all inclusive fifty state tax policy? Well, for the most part, it, at least in our experience, for the types of issues that we work on, it it doesn't tend to be the more political or ideological. It tends to be getting into the weeds. It might involve uh, certain concerns about processes or a particular state. It might be as technical as the type of software that's used. Um, now, that's not to say that there aren't some pretty controversial type of issues. As you can imagine, there are certain states when we talk about remote work, for example, and we're ten, we're observing that, not so much uh, getting involved with that issue, but uh, but that's a good example where there is more of a political issue where some states, such as New York, which have had a lot of people commute from other states, uh, they want to continue to impose an income tax on those workers. The surrounding states where those residents are who commute into New York, they they have strong concerns about those particular residents being taxed by another state. So those are the types of issues you do see more of a political or ideological or, or fairly controversial policy. But, but most of the time, uh, interestingly, it, it tends to be much more nuanced. And frankly, and I'm not really criticizing this, but I think sometimes it's also inertia. I think it's, um, there are a lot of things going on, a lot of different issues that different folks have to deal with. Frankly, a lot of the revenue departments are very understaffed, especially right now. And so I, I don't think sometimes it's anything but, hey, we've got some other priorities before we look at this particular issue and then try to see if we can start to develop changes that would lead to further uniformity. Scott, we've talked a lot about the states here, and obviously you're at the Multi-State Tax Commission, but I know a big part of what you all do is keep close tabs on what's happening in D.C. Is there anything in particular that our listeners should know about that you're monitoring coming out of Washington with respect to state tax policy? Yeah, I just wanted to mention one thing because I, I think it's just an important issue. And again, it's more uh, from our standpoint at the MTC, we're really observing and not we don't have an actual project or involvement with this issue, but I think it is important that, and that is additional funding for the Internal Revenue Service at the federal level. Uh, there's been a lot of controversial politics about that. And of course, I won't say anything about the enforcement because um, that's the most controversial part. But I will say, I think from a state perspective, we think it's really important, at least on the administrative and customer service side, that the IRS is able to deal with the issues because you've probably heard stories. People have trouble getting in touch with the IRS, at least from a state perspective and administrative perspective, that very, you know, the mundane administrative and customer service type of issues really need to be addressed 
Well, thanks so much to Scott Pattison from the Multi-State Tax Commission for sharing your thoughts with us. We really appreciate the time and the insight, Scott. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So we're doing something a little bit different than what, what we've done in the past with our the final section of our show. We, I know Justin, you and I, between the two of us, probably read a lot and consume quite a bit of news. And so we wanted to take something that we'd read this week and, and talk about it. And uh, something caught my eye this week uh, from City Lab. It was a story on a city called Mableton, Georgia. It's in the Atlanta area. The title is Residents of Suburban Atlanta's Newest City Are Already Trying to Secede. It's written by Brendan Mo- Brenton Mock. And the gist of the story is that this area, this new city, Mableton, last November, residents voted to incorporate. It's about 71,000 people who live there. Uh, it's, it's a, before the ink is even dry on on that referendum. There's a, a, a smaller group within with Mableton that that wants to, I guess, unincorporate <laughs> uh, to to turn go back into the county. It does not want to be separate. And there are a couple of moving parts, but I think what's interesting about this is, um, unlike other cases in the Atlanta area where where smaller cities where cities have tried to secede. This is not something that has drawn along racial lines. This is a, a fairly diverse group of people, but the the real difference is is that um, the area that doesn't want to be incorporated anymore tends to have more has more tax dollars essentially, and so you have this classic kind of push pull of people want their tax dollars to benefit themselves. They they don't want it to benefit somewhere else that's farther away, city center, maybe it's something like that. One of the quotes that stood out to me was a resident who said, I want to know how does this benefit me or does this hurt me? How does this play out in my life? And and that to me, it's um, it, it got me thinking about how taxpayers really want to see where their dollars, where their taxes go. And there has long been um, a suspicion, um, particularly when it comes to the to the property tax, that that residents aren't quite sure. You know, the money goes out the door, but they don't know how it gets spent or where it goes to. And people then tend not to want to get their taxes raised if they're not sure they're actually themselves going to benefit from it. And so, and that is also the reason why you tend to see specific citizen uh, measures approved, such as. Uh, a bond measure for schools in a certain neighborhood. People know that their tax dollars are going to be going to that. That's fine with them. It, it's an interesting illustration of this issue of where where do my tax dollars go and am I really benefiting? Um, Justin, you've read the story too. I was curious what, what your thoughts were on it. Yeah, I'd agree, I'd agree with all of that. It's been interesting to watch this happen because this is not the first time that something like this has happened in, in Metro Atlanta. Part of the reason that this these secession debates have been going on in greater Atlanta in particular, but I think, I think it's something that we've seen in other parts of, of Georgia and other States as well is that you've got a, the ability or the potential at least for local taxpayers to get involved in these incorporation and and unincorporation debates in a much more direct way than they can in a lot of other States. A lot of other States it requires 
either a much larger referendum or state government approval, or there's some intervening factor that says you can't just decide to carve off a piece of a city or create a new city uh, out of an existing county or out of an existing other incorporated area, which has been the case in in Metro Atlanta. And again, we've seen similar sorts of things in other places, but Atlanta is the place that seems to get the, the most attention because it seems to happen the most often there and on the largest scale, as you were saying, these are large places. These are, these are not inconsequential populations that are looking at, at changing the, the, the name of the place that they live and the services that their incorporated jurisdiction provides. So it's definitely been a, it's been interesting to watch and, and there's a lot more of it happening in this part of the world. And I think you're right. It seems like so much of what drives this is that desire to try to provide, or at least have some connection between the paying of local taxes, especially property taxes and the services that are received locally. And there's this expectation that if you get the, you know, the right boundaries drawn, then you can get exactly the kinds of services that, that you hope to have. In some ways, this is exactly what a lot of economists uh, would say we, we hope to see, right? You go back to the classic, anybody who's studied local public finance has, has probably come across the old T-Bowl model that says, um, this is what this is what urban areas are. They're they're marketplaces for services, and citizens are are shoppers, and they'll locate to wherever they find the best uh, link between the taxes they're willing to pay and the services that they receive for those taxes. And if they don't like what they're getting, they'll they'll leave. Well, there's kind of mixed evidence on that. Some very strong that says that that's how taxpayers behave, and and others who say that's not how taxpayers behave, but. What we're seeing here is in some ways kind of a twist on that, which is I won't move, but I'll carve out a new city that is what I want it to be uh, or or avoid go, avoid being part of a new city in the case of the, the immediate disincorporation that you mentioned. So it, it is a, a really fascinating kind of real-time laboratory to see how citizen attitudes toward different types of taxes affect the way that they think about the place that they want to live. You know, an important uh, part of this as well that has gotten a lot of attention is the implications of of all of these incorporation and deincorporation debates for uh, credit ratings and credit quality. Uh, there's a story uh, a couple of years ago now, as I recall, that was, and, we, and again, we've seen several of these since where uh, residents in uh, Buckhead or the neighborhood in Atlanta were looking at forming their own jurisdiction. And the question was whether carving off a big chunk of Atlanta's property tax base could lead to a downgrade for the city of Atlanta. And there was some debate about whether that would happen. Uh, but the the economic fundamentals were pretty clear to the extent that your property tax base is an important contributing factor to your general obligation bond rating, then losing a big chunk of your property tax base with no real way to make it up because a, a city was effectively incorporating within your own boundaries, uh, that would create uh, some potential credit risks. And so again, it really gets at these gets at these questions of if you if you're trying to match local taxpayer preferences uh, at the at the hyper local level, that might be a good thing in the minds of some, and it might have some intended and sometimes unintended consequences for residents of nearby jurisdictions. I think that's exactly what we're seeing. Here. Public 
Honeypot is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. To learn more about the center, check out our website, municipalfinance.uchicago.edu. If you'd like to ask a question for our extra credit segment, send a voice memo to publicmoneypod at uchicago.edu. To see more of Liz Farmer's work, visit her website, farmersfieldonline.com, and her Substack, which is substack.lizfarmer.com. And you can also find her at Twitter, at LizFarmerTweets. And thanks, as always, to our esteemed producer, Eric Gaber. If you like the podcast, be sure to follow us, drop a review, and tell your network. That's all for now. We'll catch you next time.